This is the Gender Justice Brief, a podcast of gender justice. We fight for gender equity by breaking down legal, structural, and cultural barriers and expanding protections. We want to see all people thrive, regardless of their gender, gender expression, and sexual orientation. Welcome to the Gender Justice Brief. I'm Cam, Institutional Giving Manager for Gender Justice, and this week's host. Today, we'll be talking about telehealth and medication abortion. And joining me is my colleague, Sarah Jane Baldwin, Senior Staff Attorney here at Gender Justice. Hi, Sarah Jane. Hey, Cam. How are you? I'm great. And extremely excited uh, because we are joined by a special guest today, Terry Ann Thompson, Senior Research Scientist at IBIS Reproductive Health. I probably should have asked that before the show. Thank you for being on the show, Terry Ann. No, this is it, it is an extreme pleasure to be on my very first podcast. So this is like huge for me. So thanks for the invitation and really looking forward to this conversation. And you got it exactly right. It is Ibis Reproductive Health. Glad I got it in one. So let's start. I'd love for you to just tell us and our audience a little bit about yourself, Terri Ann, and the work that you do. Sure. So I'm a social science researcher and my work focuses on assessing the use of telehealth and sexual and reproductive health, as well as documenting the impact of legislative policies on reproductive health care, as well as reproductive health access. And finally, on capturing sexual and reproductive health experiences and perspectives of historically oppressed communities. And we find that very amazing at Gender Justice because that's really in alignment with our, our work, um, our intersectional work around abortion and uh, access to repro care. Um, but for our audience who may not know, um, can you give us a little background of what telehealth is? Sure. So it might actually be helpful to first start by defining telehealth, right? So Telehealth refers broadly to electronic and telecommunications technologies and services that are used to provide care and services at a distance. And this technology can either be used to connect to an individual to a provider in real time, or it can be used to capture information that a provider reviews and responds to at a later time. And in the last couple of years, telehealth has actually really grown in the United States. In fact, in the U.S., it has outpaced care settings such as urgent care centers, retail clinics, as well as ambulatory uh, surgical centers. And where we really saw it surge was actually during the pandemic. And just to drop a little bit of research here, in a report from the CDC, which was released in 2021, I believe, it actually shows that telehealth use among adults in the U.S. in 2021 grew to 30%. So 37% of adults had actually used telehealth services in the past 12 months. And that was actually higher among women than it was among men. And thinking more specifically to sexual and reproductive health, we know that telehealth is now being used for a number of sexual and reproductive health services, including contraception, abortion, screenings for sexually transmitted infections, pregnancy options, counselings, and in some cases for HIV care. That's really interesting. And I guess my question would be, what, aside from the pandemic keeping people out of the doctor's office, what are the other reasons why people would be using telehealth and, and that rise? And I guess I'm particularly interested, you said more women are using it. So is there any research or, or reason behind that? So there are three different reasons, and, and maybe I'll go into some more specifically around abortion care. But the first is that telehealth actually does expand the spaces in which people can get a service. And in some cases, it actually helps people to get a service more quickly, it's more confidential, and it can reduce the cost of the service. 
One benefit that folks don't talk about nearly as much is that it does actually enhance patient autonomy. So many telehealth services actually support self-management. So for many of those services, self-administration of a medication is, a, is an actual component of the service. It supports self-testing. Many telehealth models actually require an individual to participate in screening themselves to determine eligibility for a service, as well as to monitor themselves for um, complication. And it also requires self-awareness, right? So whether that be applications that prompt the individual to educate themselves about sexual and reproductive health or applications that help them to determine whether they need to seek additional care. All of these components lead into this self-care domain or rather patient autonomy. And the last reason is really convenience. We hear this over and over again, that telehealth is convenient. It really accommodates many of your life circumstances. And one of the reasons why that might be more of a, a finding for women than it is for men is that we still see an uneven burden in terms of childcare in this country, as well as in the world, um, with women bearing the brunt of that burden. And telehealth does accommodate childcare needs and or caregiving needs, right? Because we're now in a new era where it's not just children that you caretake, but also your parents and other family members as well. No, that makes complete sense. And as somebody that likes convenience, that speaks to me. <laughs> the idea of being able to hop on my computer and see a doctor as opposed to having to drive I suppose, especially too, if you're in a rural area where your medical options are limited, this seems like a, a huge benefit. Absolutely. Now, in two past episodes of the Gender Justice Brief, we actually did a pretty deep dive into mifepristone and medication abortion. I'd encourage our listeners to listen back at those episodes for really that what that means and, and what the controversies uh, legally are right now around those. But I'd love for just a little bit of a primer around what is medication abortion and how does that tie into telehealth? Absolutely. So you probably on that podcast talked about this, but I'll just repeat in brief that medication abortion, there are really two recommended regimens for medication abortion. But I'll speak on this podcast because we only have a limited amount of time about the most commonly used one here in the U.S., which actually uses two medications. So it involves mifepristone, which actually blocks the hormone that's necessary to continue a pregnancy. And that's followed by the medication misoprostol, which is administered 24 to 48 hours later. And that causes the uterus to contract and expel the pregnant. And thinking about the telehealth for medication abortion model, how that works is that during a telehealth appointment, a doctor, a nurse, or some other qualified health professional would actually review the medical history of the patient to ensure eligibility for medication abortion. They would give the patient some information about how the two pills work, how to take them, what to look for as the body expels the pregnancy, and then when to seek medical attention in the rare instance of a complication. The medications would then be mailed to the patient, and the patient must provide a mailing address in a state where abortion is legal. That, does that help? Yeah, that helps okay. immensely. So what it sounds like to me is a way that someone in a state that has an address in a state that abortion is legal, telemedicine is a fantastic option for them to be able to access medication abortion because it's, I'm guessing it's less intrusive than walking into a doctor's office just alone, probably a less scary experience, but certainly more accessible to the general public. Now, what if you are in a state where it is not legal to have an abortion? Where do those lines fall? 
So in states where it's not legal, there are a few options. There is certainly data suggesting now, and if you actually have been keeping track of the recount report, we can see that there has been extensive travel. So people are actually leaving their state and traveling to states where abortion is legal to get the service. But there are actual online services such as aid access that do provide some access to medication abortion in those states. And so people are able to actually go online. There's a sliding scale that they would actually pay for those services, and they would be able to access those two pills. That's excellent. The, with the caveat being there are some states that have some pretty draconian, it doesn't matter where you are going, if you travel for abortions, you can still find some legal trouble for that if you were reported by your neighbor, for instance, or which is a scary reality for many people. Absolutely, Cam. It goes without, it should go with saying, right? Like I should have said that criminalization is a very real threat. And it is quite unfortunate in this country that a service that is essential, that is a right, quite frankly, is now that people are now faced with these real concerns, real worries when they're faced with wanting to actually get a service that they desire. Absolutely. Now, Sarah Jane, on that legal aspect of all this work, that's really one of the things that we're monitoring with gender justice. And we've begun to move into North Dakota where abortion is banned. I'd love for you to just say a little bit about what gender justice's work is right now in these areas and, and how we're meeting these needs. Yeah. So as most of our listeners probably know that gender justice has been doing a lot of work to make sure, especially specifically in Minnesota, that Minnesotans have access to abortion and in Minnesota, abortion is legal. Um, it is available and it is a right. Many laws and barriers that were in place to keep people from accessing or having easier access to that health care were uh, taken off the books last year during that session. And so a lot of that good work was done. And, and when we talk about telehealth and we talk about medication abortion, it's important for Minnesotans to know that abortion is available by telehealth in Minnesota. So as much as at Gender Justice, we're obviously thrilled about strides that were made in the last session, there's still work to do. And so when it comes to telehealth, right now there are some disparities in terms of the reimbursement that providers can get for providing that service via telehealth. And that's a big deal for these clinics. They're providing the same health care via telehealth, but they're not getting the same reimbursement from insurance. And they right. that's a big issue that I know is going to come up in our legislative session this year and that gender justice is keeping an eye on in terms of working for improving those reimbursement rates for telehealth and for all forms of access to that to abortion care. Another area that's always interesting in our work outside of the legal realm, gender justice, yes, we're always keeping an eye on the law and any legal challenges, but we're also always wanting to see how we can work our advocacy and education angles on improving the lives of Minnesotans. And so a big, another challenge with telehealth, although it can be more convenient and all of the things that, you know, Terry Ann talks about in terms of autonomy and better access, of course, as with access to many things that people with, the, there are people who have a lot of barriers to even accessing telehealth. You have to have a certain kind of device usually to get onto the internet. You have to have internet access. And those are the types of things that our advocacy teams and our education teams are always looking to make sure we're keeping up on and talking about and researching and making sure that we're doing everything we can to get access and information to the folks who need it the most. Absolutely. 
I just think in Minnesota, I'm in Duluth, which is up north in Minnesota, if you're listening and you don't know. Basically Canada, uh, as far as most people are concerned. Um, Sarah Jane is also in Duluth, uh, ironically. And we know that the only clinic serving all of northeastern Minnesota, most of northwestern Wisconsin, pretty much anywhere north of the Twin Cities, is we just have one for our part of the state. And that's where I imagine this kind of telehealth access is absolutely vital because just getting to a clinic is mind-bogglingly challenging for people who are not in the immediate Duluth area here. I just think about this as such an important issue, and it's why we at Gender Justice feel so strongly about monitoring this and providing as many ways as possible to advocate for open access to these things. Now, with that being said, I'd love to talk a little bit about abortion seekers and telemedicine and get into that. This seems like your area of expertise and research, and what do we know about people who use these services and on a national landscape around these issues? I want to take a step back because Sarah Jane talking about some of the work that gender justice is doing related to telehealth for medication abortion reminded me that I really missed an opportunity to talk about some of the evidence that we know more broadly about yeah. telehealth for medication abortion. And then I can answer your question, Kim, about what do we know so far about who is using the service? So more broadly, again, to start, medication abortion is safe and effective. It's been in use here in the United States for more than 20 years. And we have done several, in fact, in my time at Ibis Reproductive Health, we have done several of the, the evaluations of uh, telehealth for medication abortion model. And we have found those models to actually be safe and effective as compared with an in-clinic medication abortion. In fact, if you want numbers, the models are reported to be about 95% effective and the serious adverse event uh, rate is less than one thing. Right? When you see uh, sort of not anecdotally, but in layman's terms, people will tell you medication abortion is actually safer than taking Tylenol, which is actually true and a really easy way to glom on to this idea of what does safety mean when we think about medication abortion. But it goes beyond safety and effectiveness in terms of telemedicine for medication abortion. The models have actually been found to be highly acceptable by patients and by providers. In fact, evaluations that I've done in collaboration with clinics like independent abortion providers, as well as Planned Parenthood affiliates, have shown that about 80% of telehealth for medication abortion clients would recommend the service to another friend, right? And that's the way that we actually test satisfaction and acceptability is, if it's good enough for me, would I actually recommend it to somebody else? And that's over 80% of telehealth clients saying that they would actually recommend that service. And we've done not just quantitative studies, we've also done some qualitative studies because we've tried to understand, to your point, who is seeking this service? Why are they seeking this service? And in their own words, what we've heard from patients is that when they've had an abortion either closer to their home, as is the case with the in-clinic telehealth for medication abortion, or in their home, as is the case with the direct-to-patient telehealth for medication abortion, it really offers a level of flexibility and accommodation as it relates to their schedule. We've also learned, and Cam, you mentioned this or hinted at this earlier, that there are a variety of reasons why people might actually desire to have this kind of service versus an in-clinic service. And some of that is a desire to avoid protesters, to avoid the clinic setting in general. It is a desire for privacy. There is still abortion stigma is still alive and well in this country and that's internal as well as external. It's also a way for folks to get to medication abortion, to get a, a medication abortion as soon as possible. 
when we actually talk to clients or, or patients about why they chose a telehealth for medication abortion service, the number one reason we get every time is I wanted to have this abortion as soon as possible. And more often than not, as is the case when you think about your fellow folks in Duluth, the earliest availability, the earliest appointment that they can get is often a telehealth for medication abortion. And that makes a difference for folks. And I would be remiss if I did not say, keeping on this line, this thread of access and accessibility, that telehealth for medication abortion has actually been shown to reduce so many logistical barriers that are created by policies requiring attendance at multiple appointments in a state with limited abortion services, as well as with increasing accessibility for those seeking abortion services in these rural settings. And this last bit, which really happened around the time of the pa pandemic, which is omitting the ultrasound, as well as in-clinic medication dispensing, does facilitate abortion access by reducing travel, as well as the abortion costs. So all of that together is just a, the broader picture of what's happening with telehealth for medication abortion. When we drill down further to who is actually using the service, the data is building, it's growing. We don't have a whole lot of it yet. But what we know so far is that telehealth abortion services right now seem less common among those who identify as Black and Asian Pacific Islander. It's less common among those who identify as young. It's less common among those who are less educated and it's less common among those who are non-English speakers. And I don't actually have to go into too much detail about why these differences exist because Sarah Jane gave that away, right? Part of why it exists is the work that you're doing. It exists because insurance coverage makes a big difference in terms of healthcare utilization. And for many individuals in this country, because of structural racism, Black and brown bodies tend to be more represented in the low income category in this country, which means pu public insurance is a, makes a big difference in terms of uh, utilization. And that is variable. And there are many states that do not cover telehealth abortion at all. And there are other states, which Sarah suggested, that cover some parts of the service and not others, right? So a quick example is that some states in some states, an online questionnaire and a telephone consultation would not actually constitute an acceptable standard of care, which means you have to have a video call for the telehealth service. And again, Sarah mentioned this already, that is going to be a huge barrier for people who live in areas without reliable internet or cell phone service or who don't have access to a high-speed internet connection. And I know some of you on the call are thinking, who doesn't have access to high-speed internet? Well, the country. <laughs> the latest research from the Pew um, Research Center showed that only half of low-income households have broadband internet service in this country, and only 20% of those with internet access actually have smartphones. To Cam's point, a lot of people still don't have that. And then I also mentioned that we were seeing this lower use for non-English speakers. That relates to accommodations around limited English proficiency or even accommodations around American Sign Language interpretation. That service is simply missing for many telehealth programs. And the last thing I will say is we should not take it for granted that everyone has the privacy and security that you and I and Sarah might have in our own homes to actually allow for a telehealth visit. For some people, that is quite challenging, and they simply do not have um, the ability to do that. And we have many, many a story 
of people actually doing the telehealth service from their car, yes. as an example, because that is the most private space that they can actually have that service done. So I, I hope that gives you a quick picture of who's using it and like what some of the challenges are. And, and maybe we should just put some stats on this call too, which is to say, this might be particularly important in a state like Minnesota. Obviously, the work of gender justice is incredibly important, but in a state where 61% of your abortions are actually medication abortions, it matters, right? The work that you're doing around coverage. In a state where you actually have cover, uh, you actually have telehealth services in two different formats, you have online platforms and you have it through clinics, it matters the work that you're doing around coverage and reimbursement. And in fact, if we look again to the We Count report, which is a national sort of surveillance effort tracking abortion provision following the fall of Roe, it seems like close to 20% of the abortions that are being received in Minnesota are actually through virtual uh, clinics. So it matters. All the work that you're doing actually matters because your numbers support that work. We always love to hear that, um, but it, those statistics mean a lot to us. That's uh, We want the models that we are building in Minnesota to be replicable across the United States, and we want abortion care to be accessible by everyone, but we got to get it figured out in Minnesota here first, and there's a lot still to be done, as Sarah Jane had mentioned, about reimbursement and those financial aspects of access. Absolutely. Now, with all of those statistics in mind and all the research that you're doing, what do we not know yet? What questions remain in the areas of telehealth and medication abortion? Well, I think there are a couple of different questions. So one is we are, when we think about equity, we are thinking uh, more about what it means to have telehealth integrated into multiple other spaces, not just in these specialized spaces. 95% of abortion care in this country actually occurs outside of a hospital setting. And that's not where the rest of our healthcare happens. So I think we are very curious about understanding what happens once telehealth is actually integrated into like primary care setting, right? So that you actually have seamless care. And that is research that needs to be done from both the patient, like understanding their perspectives and their experiences from the patient perspective, as well as the provider perspective. Let's be clear, there are still providers who are not interested in offering abortion services in this country. So we do need to do some work as it relates to just accessibility or rather approachability from that sense. There's also work that we need to do related to quality of care. We don't know as much as telehealth is growing in this country, not just in abortion care, but across different healthcare settings. We don't quite understand what it means um, in terms of quality of care and whether what pieces actually might make the, the experience not as preferable, if you will, for some patients versus other patients, right? So one study that we haven't released yet, but you're hearing a, a sneak peek of the results here, is that we did find for the in-clinic telehealth for medication abortion model that having a same race provider actually did help uh, folks to feel like the, there was more rapport during the call, um, during the telehealth or medication abortion visit, right? And that is work that we need to explore further to see whether there is uh, an effect of racial concordance in terms of abortion um, provision and specifically telehealth for medication abortion provision. There is almost no work that's been done in terms of minor access, right? Are minors using telehealth for medication abortion? How are they finding out about telehealth for medication abortion? What is their experience? What accommodations have been made? 
at the clinic level for minor access for medication abortion. And then, of course, there is the piece that gender justice is anxiously awaiting and that my colleague Ushma Upadhyay and I are furiously trying to collect data on, which is, does having insurance coverage make a difference um, for telehealth or medication abortion? And we are currently collecting data for Medicaid enrollees as we speak to try to assess some of that. So lots of um, gaps remain in terms of the research, and we are furiously um, working to fill those for you. It's so funny because what I want you to do is guess uh, what the results of that are going to be, but you're a researcher, so I'm sure you have a thesis out there of whether or not that is, but uh, we will be very interested in hearing what the results are of that research. So with all of that being said, uh, Sarah Jane, I'd love to throw the ball back to you here and just uh, maybe summarize for especially our Minnesota listeners, because that's where our work with gender justice is based. What should folks know about uh, telehealth and medication abortion? I think it's just important to remember that there's a lot of there's a lot of media, a lot of news, a lot going around right now about medication abortion, whether it's safe here, legal here. And, and I think the really important things are to remember, it's, it's very easy. And medication abortion is well-researched, studied, and it's very safe. As Terry Ann said earlier, it is legal in Minnesota. It is legal if you want to have a telehealth appointment, and it is legal if you want to go have an in-clinic appointment. It is covered by insurance, whether you are on Minnesota Care or whether you are on private insurance. Abortion is, or I guess I should clarify, some private insurance you should check first. I can't speak for all private insurance. But you are covered if you are on Minnesota Care. And so it's just important to remember that it's safe and it's legal here in Minnesota. And with all of that, gender justice is going to be here, keeping you updated, keeping you informed, and keeping up on what's happening. And stay tuned to the podcast. Stay tuned to our website where we've got lots of fact sheets and information. And yeah, stay here where we'll have more awesome guests like like Terry Ann here providing us with awesome data and statistics and just great information. I love that. Terry Ann, was there anything else you wanted to add about these topics or your work? That's a great question. So before I do that, I will say that I neglected to say at the beginning that I actually went to McAllister College of Minnesota, <laughs> a very special place in my heart. So I am not only is this podcast my first, but it also gets to be in a state that is very near and dear to me. And if I could shout out, my host mom is still in Minnesota. Shout out mom to the podcast. I have to interrupt you because I also went to McAllister College. (laughs) Go back. Nothing rhymes with blue and orange. McAllister, I love it. Yes. Uh, So the, the one thing that I will say, it's less about the work and more about the sort of the landscape that we're in now, right? So following the Olive Row, abortion provision has become quite a patchwork of access in this country. And states like Minnesota, Illinois, California, Florida, you've really, I I don't want to say shown up, but you have been a, a, a real light, quite frankly, to many who are seeking these services. And I really want to applaud all the efforts, the legislative efforts that have been happening to really ensure um, that abortion in all its formats is available to Minnesotans, to your residents, as well as to those who are traveling in for care. I don't want to take it lightly when Sarah talks about reimbursement. This is not just an issue that is specific to telehealth for medication abortion, but in some of the work that I do, some of the other work that I do specifically around the Hyde Amendment, we have shown time and time again that there are multiple impacts to reimbursement rates a reimbursement process that is slow and arduous, as well as to a reimbursement rate that is is low. And what we don't want is the eventual case of 
the reimbursement rates and or coverage because they are slow, because they are low, becoming in essence a de facto ban on abortion coverage, right? We don't want that to happen. So I really want to impress on folks that we here, standing in the national space, have been really inspired by the work that's happening in all these different states. We are sitting in a space where not only does your state really matter as it relates to abortion provision in this country, but it really matters even as you're thinking about telehealth, right? Like telehealth provision of medication abortion and all the work that you're doing will really not only benefit um, your residents, but I think will also uh, be a real benefit for other abortion seekers across this country because it will either be a nice, you'll be an ambassador for other states or it would really allow other people to be able to come into your state and get the services that they need, the essential services that they need. I think I would. our audience would also love to know if they want to learn more about you and your research, where can they find you, World? Absolutely. If you would like to find out more information about myself, my work, or my organization, I really encourage you to go to the website. We do a lot of work in the abortion, in the contraception, in the HIV, and also in the transgender and gender expansive space all around sexual and reproductive health care. And some of the work that has been particularly dear and near to me is work that I have gotten to do with reproductive justice organizations such as Sister Song and Sister Reach. And I even have worked with I believe it's Or Justice in Minnesota, yeah. which is an abortion fund, but is also a reproductive justice organization. And that has been some of my most fulfilling work to be able to actually work with champions of reproductive justice, quite frankly, and to push the envelope because we know it does not start or end with abortion access in this country. It is about people being able to thrive sexual in their sexual and reproductive health. And that that means you should have access to all the pieces. That's pre-contraceptive care, that's abortion care, that's prenatal care, that's good delivery services, good postpartum care, and God forbid, care in menopause so that we can still be happy and sexually active once we're done with all our reproduction. That is the kind of work that I do. And if you want to find out more about the work that myself and other esteemed colleagues do at Ibis Reproductive Health, I encourage you to check us out at our website. Definitely. While we're shouting out uh, partners and organizations that we're involved with, um, I just want to say that uh, the funding part in part for the tele-abortion um, work that we do at Gender Justice is funded through the Reproductive Health Initiative for Telehealth Equity and Solutions. They were part of the catalyst for doing this episode and helped us find you, terri So I just wanted to make sure that we mentioned them because they are um, an excellent source of funding in this space, um, and, and we're very proud to be a part of this work. I want to thank you, terri for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Cam, for your invitation and also to have now met new friends from Gender Justice. And thank you, Minnesota, for everything you've done for me. It's been a, it's been wonderful. And thank you, Sarah Jane, for being on the podcast. And this has been the Gender Justice Brief. Thanks for tuning in to the Gender Justice Brief. This show is produced by Gunter Yanel and Audrey Griegas. To keep up with our work in real time, be sure to check out the show notes for where to find us on the web, social media, and to sign up for text updates. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share to help us spread our message. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.